Holy Gospel according to St. John, the sixth chapter, beginning with the 24th verse. Glory, Glory to you, O Lord. When the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were beside the sea, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For it is on him that God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to perform the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What sign are you going to give us then, so that we may see and believe you? What work are you performing? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated. <clears throat> invite you to join me now in a word of prayer. Good and gracious God, we pause to stop to give you thanks for the gift of this day, the gift of this moment. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, for your hedge of protection that surrounds us at all times, even when we are unaware. We thank you for the gift of each other, this opportunity to worship you in spirit and in truth, to pray, to sing, to listen, to receive, to taste and see that you are good. And now, Lord, as your word goes forth, we pray as always that it might be for the salvation of souls, the transformation of lives, the edification of all hearers, the furtherance of your kingdom and ultimately the glory of your name. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. <clears throat> Amen. My sermon text for this morning is the gospel lesson. John chapter 6, verses 24 through 35. My sermon title for today is The Difference Between Time and Eternity. The Difference Between Time and eternity. <clears throat> I think it was in the winter of 1982-83 in Garner, where my, when my friends and I were about 15 years old and had just begun high school. Uh, back then, that would have been the 10th grade. 
We didn't yet drive, so had to walk everywhere we went. We had a rare snow day off from school, and two of my best friends came over to my house. We had a particular mission in mind, and so we dedicated ourselves to it on that particular day. The snow must have piled up a bit because I remember that it was tough going, walking in it. It probably came midway up our calves, and so it was both fun and slow walking in it. We were making our way to the local grocery store, the Food Lion in Forest Hills, perhaps a mile from my house. Along the way, of course, we played and jostled and wrestled and threw snowballs at each other and threw each other down in the snow. So by the time that we arrived at Food Lion, we were cold, wet, soggy, and sneezing. We made our way directly to the records section. And by the way, how funny is that? The fact that grocery stores used to have a small records section. And of course, by records, I mean those vinyl discs that used to play music. We then found the section for single songs, or 45s, as opposed to the entire albums, which were 33s. I began searching in alphabetical order by artist's last name while we dripped all over the floor, with them continually asking me, is it there? Did you find it? Do they have it? We had come so far, you see, in our adolescent minds and through such inclement weather that they just had to have what we were looking for. Looking back on it, my memory of this occasion is so vivid and we were filled with such expectation and anticipation, it probably qualified at that time as the closest we had ever come to a holy moment. As my fingers found the particular song we were looking for, I slowly lifted it up in the air out of the rest of the records, and an eerie silence overtook us all. Our eyes got big, our mouths slowly dropped, and no one said anything as we simply gazed in wide wonder at the treasure we had found, as if it were the Holy Grail. Even the artwork on the cover or the sleeve was something we had never seen and was downright psychedelic. There in stunned, dripping, wet silence, we all gazed upon George Clinton's new single, Atomic Dog. Now, say what you will, but it doesn't get much funkier than Atomic Dog. I mean, to me and to us, back then, Atomic Dog pretty much represented the zenith, the apex, the height of American pop music. In the winter of 82, 83, my friends and I were absolutely convinced that the top of the musical mountain had been scaled, and for all the remaining years of our lives, it was inevitably all downhill from there. That's what everyone thinks when they're young. That's part of youth. That's part of the excitement and enthusiasm and idealism of youthful fervor and novelty. Now, it might not have been George Clinton and Atomic Dog for you, but it was something. And I'm sure you can fill in your own blank. Remember that song? Remember that outfit? Remember that particular style of clothes? Remember that one particular summer? Remember that one person who caught your special attention? Remember your first kiss? Or the second one, if the first wasn't that good? 
Remember when your life was simple? Remember when life was carefree? When basically all you had on your plate was to have as much fun as possible with your friends until the sun went down and you had to come in? Remember when it was all about the latest fashion, the latest album, the latest fad or trend, the latest style? And each one seemed to stand on the shoulders of the one that came before it. And they all seemed to build and lead inexorably to something grand and tremendous. Remember when a day was a day? A month was truly significant? And a year? A year seemed to take forever because of the number of changes and transitions that could occur such as the beauty and joy and excitement and effervescence of youth. But then, as you grow older and more mature and become wiser, you begin to notice something, to notice a certain trend. A day passes so quickly now. A month comes and goes without much fanfare. And a year? A year now is... Pretty much like any other year, absent some life-changing catastrophe. There's always the next hot thing. There's always the latest style and hippest trends. There's always another hot athlete, entertainer, celebrity, or musician. Just when I thought Atomic Dog was the end-all, be-all, along came Candy Girl by New Edition. And then it was ZZ Top, Mark. There's nothing wrong with being caught up in the moment as a youth. The passion and zeal for what's currently popular. Indeed, that's part of the definition of being young. It's just that as one matures, you realize that there's always something more popular coming down the pike. That pop culture is a never-ending wheel of hot people, trends, and phenomena. That life itself seems to be nothing more than a constant, non-stop, revolving door of such moments. And much like an oblivious hamster or gerbil, we can get to running on that stationary wheel, exhaust ourselves just trying to keep up. But when you finally stop running and get off the wheel, if you ever do, you'll notice that you haven't gone anywhere. You haven't progressed. You're simply in the same spot you started from. It's just that now you're tired. It's the difference, my friends, between time and timelessness. Between time and eternity. Between the passing, the fleeting, the temporary, the transient, and the permanent, the eternal. It's the difference, really, between food that perishes and food that endures for eternal life. The likes between which Jesus distinguishes in verse 27 this morning. It is really a common religious sentiment, which is well attested in all the world's major religions, and which serves as a well-placed provocation and corrective for most of us. Isaiah 55 asked the pointed question a good 500 years prior to Jesus. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Ecclesiastes 5 observes, much to our chagrin, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with gain. It's all vanity. 
Ecclesiastes 6 concludes, All the toil of man is for his mouth, and yet his appetite is never satisfied. 1 John 2 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world, for the world is passing away, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. And 2 Corinthians 4 encourages us, Look not to the things which are seen, but rather to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, while the things that are unseen are eternal. So, given all this consistent scriptural witness, sage advice, and wise counsel, it disturbs me that you and I as human beings have such a proclivity for, such an orientation towards the temporary, the fleeting, the transient, even though we know and acknowledge those things to be such. It's almost as if we know we're like the gerbil on that stationary wheel, exerting ourselves, running long and hard, making money to spend it, only to step off the wheel exhausted in the exact same place we started. But we're too scared to really do anything about it. Too scared to actually step off the wheel and stop running. Particularly when the rest of the world and everybody we know is doing that exact same thing. Too fearful to actually be different to be reflective, to, as the psalm says, be still and know that He is God. It's like William Sloan Coffin, Yale University's chaplain in the 1960s, once observed, if you win the rat race, you're still a rat. Think about it for a moment, my friends. Think of where our time and energy and money go. Houses and homes. Food which perishes. Because one day you won't occupy that place. Cars and TVs, furniture and computers. Food which perishes. Because newer models and additions are always coming out next year and most things are considered old, primitive, or obsolete within a few years. Vacations perishable because you need another one a couple months later sports seasons perishable because they always end and begin anew the following year even some miracles of God such as the immediately preceding feeding of the 5,000 with only five loaves and two fish can prove to be food which perishes insofar as physical hunger regains a foothold here not even ten verses later as the people clamor for more bread and more food. It is downright discouraging and depressing to consider Jesus' distinction here between food that perishes and food which endures for eternal life because, upon honest reflection, most of our desires and attractions and things with which we occupy ourselves significantly are temporary, fleeting, and therefore qualify as perishable. So now, upon honest conviction and repentance... We find ourselves asking the same question the crowd asks Jesus in verse 28. Well, then what must we do to perform the works of God? Translation, what then should we do to be laboring for this food that you're talking about, this food that endures for eternal life? Think of all the things you expect Jesus to answer here. Based on the typical answers many average Christian folks say. Well, don't drink, smoke, 
cuss, do drugs, have sex outside of marriage, or listen to too much secular music. But instead, tithe your income and maybe speak in tongues every once in a while. And now think of all the scriptural answers that Jesus could have given, citing the Ten Commandments, the two great commands, the Great Commission, the Beatitudes, the fruit of the Spirit, or any of the prophetic injunctions concerning justice. Jesus responds, none of the above here, actually, but merely this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom God has sent, namely Himself, the only Son of God, the incarnate Word of God made flesh, Lord and Savior of all creation. It is long being noted, my friends, that the subject of Jesus' preaching and teaching and the object of His focus in the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke is the kingdom of God. While in this fourth Gospel of John, it is actually He Himself. In John, Jesus is Himself embodying this kingdom of God that He proclaims in the other three Gospels. Along those lines, you can detect a further elaboration of self-reference when Jesus declares, beginning in verse 32, It is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And if he isn't being clear and controversial enough here, he concludes this entire section of text with the first of his seven famous I Am statements, all from John's Gospel. The others being, I am the light of the world, the door of the sheep, the good shepherd, the true vine, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life. But herein, in verse 35, he pronounces, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Material such as this text before us today accounts for the traditional Christian emphasis upon faith as opposed to works, as it concerns salvation, or being in right relationship with God, or as the text puts it, performing the works of God. It is almost assumed in some ways, in the entirety of Scripture, that if one has faith in Jesus, then the resulting actions and behaviors of love, mercy, justice, and service follow naturally and organically. So the whole movement of this text, I believe, serves both to point out or highlight our human problem pertaining to true meaning and spiritual satisfaction and to suggest the solution to our predicament. We go from a divine prognosis of spending too much of our lives laboring for food which perishes rather than food which endures for eternal life to truly seeking then to do the will of God only to be told that the one thing God desires is faith in His Son Jesus the internal bread of life. To get off that stationary hamster wheel then, to detach ourselves from all our distracting, diverting, unproductive, and non-transforming labors, involves faith, believe, trust in the person of Jesus the Christ, the one whom God the Father has sent as the true bread of life to satisfy hunger and satiate thirst. And over time, what such a realization, what such an acceptance will impart is not only a different prioritizing, primarily of others over ourselves, but also a new and unforeseen dimension to one's labors and efforts. A new and unforeseen dimension to one's labors and efforts. 
you will not only begin to love your neighbor as yourself, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you, to do unto the least of these in our world as you would do unto Christ himself. But these things will occur in the context of another scripture which will testify to the timeless, eternal, imperishable nature and character of your new life in Christ. That scripture is 2 Peter 3, verse 8. 2 Peter 3, verse 8 says, It's familiar enough to many of you as to be almost cliche and readily quotable. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years are as one day. Allow me to repeat that. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years are as one day. But I don't think we're as much... We really understand only the second half of that, actually. Since God is eternal and exists outside of time, we can say a thousand years to Him is like one day. But I don't think we're as much aware of the first half. One day is as a thousand years. One day in God's sight or perspective is as a thousand years. So let's take today then, shall we? Today's worship is as a thousand worship services in God's sight. Today's communion is as a thousand communions to God. Today's prayers and hymns reverberate a thousandfold unto God in heaven. If you leave this church today and smile at one person on the way home, you know how many smiles are recorded up in heaven? A thousand. If you leave this church today and speak an encouraging word to one person, you know how many encouraging words will be recorded in the divine register? A thousand. If you go home today and help out one person, do you know how many heavenly records indicate that you have helped out? You tell me. If you go out or back home today and have a loving shared meal with another person, do you know how many fellowship meals the Lamb's Book of Life records went down? 1,000. If you do justice one time, God sees a thousand instances. If you love kindness one time, God beholds a thousand. If you walk humbly today, God sees a thousand years of you walking humbly alongside Him. If you help but one child, you have helped how many? A thousand. If you assist one elderly person, you've assisted how many? A thousand. If you make that one phone call you need to make today, you will have made how many? A thousand. If you give one dollar to charity, how much is it? A thousand. If you give ten dollars to ministry, how much is it? I got you. Ten thousand. See how? See what I did there? So I, I switched it up. If you give twenty dollars to help the poor, how much is it? Twenty thousand. Oh, just like Jesus took five loaves and fed how many? Five thousand. God takes one day, one instance, and makes a thousand days, a thousand instances. Didn't he take one death and save thousands and thousands of people by it? Didn't he take one resurrection and save people for a couple thousand years? Oh, it's one thing to take out a coveted record and gaze at it with awe, when in fact it's temporary, fleeting, transient, and perishable. 
But when you take out one instance of compassion, one instance of sympathy, one instance of generosity, one instance of grace and mercy, one instance of kindness and remorse, one instance of justice and liberation, one instance of healing and deliverance, one instance of truth and reconciliation, one instance of faith, hope, and love, one instance of praise, they are multiplied 1,000 times in the sight of God the Father, in the name of Jesus the Son, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then, because you represent Christ, because you now become, in essence, Jesus for somebody else, they pull you out of the mass of humanity and look at you with wonder and awe. They pull you out of the crowds on the hamster wheel, the population running the rat race, and they look at you like this, in stunned, eerie, and awe-filled silence, much like my friends and I looked at that record, because what they see in you is a life so infused with Jesus Christ, so infused by love and grace, mercy and forgiveness, that what they are really beholding is the very identity of God. His cross of sacrifice, His holiness of love resonating all over you, through you, and in you. They look at you with awe because they see Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, who is eternal. The difference, my friends, between time and eternity, not much, actually. Not much.